Welcome to The Third Wheel. Uh, this is episode six. And today we are going to talk about the prologue and first eight chapters of The Great Hunt, the second book in The Wheel of Time. I am Tyler, and here to join me is... Bion. Bion. And... Hey, it's Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Whoa. Now wait, the way that you just said, hey, are you, are you trying to manipulate me? I won't be a puppet. You can do whatever you like. No puppet. <laughs> You're a puppet. <laughs> You're a puppet, honey. You're a puppet. This intro isn't going as well as I'd hoped. <laughs> Quick, cat crosses the courtyard to the next section. <laughs> Secret ninja art. Hey, you were so covered. Honestly. Um, okay, so before we get into it, so I was reading this section, taking the notes, and thinking about why I liked it immediately so much more than The Eye of the World. And I'll get into it more specifically as we go but i think something to keep in mind is like how much more dynamic this all feels yes yeah um the thing in the eye of the world i mean obviously the plot is kind of simpler but also i think since we're mostly getting things from rand's perspective in that book everything just feels like he is like it's this one character seeing it Versus in these first eight chapters, I think we have, I don't know, six, six. or seven. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. There's a bunch of perspectives of events happening, and all of the characters know different things. They're talking to different people. Um, it just feels like there's more at play here, even though, with the exception of the prologue, it is only events within this one, uh, not even the town, just like the one castle. I think dynamic is a good word for it. I was trying to figure that out for myself. I think when we were reading The Eye of the World, every now and then I talked about how a lot of the times the characters in The Wheel of Time don't feel like living, active characters. They feel like tools of the plot. But every now and then they feel alive and they're actually real and interacting with each other and not just in the service of the plot. And I think the ratio tips much further in the balance of like enjoyable dynamic living characters in the beginning of this book than the first book yeah i definitely agree i the world felt really dull this one while it has the same sort of describing the chamber and the lights <laughs> and the fire it's um cinematic rather than trying out my favorite thesaurus so yeah. i i appreciated that as well yeah, so yeah. that's a uh, auspicious start. Yeah, let's hope it continues to be just as positive. Speaking of positivity, prologue in the shadow. This is a positive chapter. I'm about to be negative about this chapter. Whoa. <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far. The man called Bors. He is literally a man called Bors. Yeah. I feel like this is the sort of thing like written by J.J. Abrams. It's like... What's in the mystery box? Here's all these characters that I'm going to describe and not tell you anything about them. You better be taking notes. Let's play some long form yeah. verbal <laughs> guess who. 
Many adjectives, no context. Yeah. <laughs> it's guess who, but only in the theater of the mind. Uh. <laughs> Paint me a word picture. <laughs> I, I just got the feeling of, oh, this is a cult. Yay. Um, from from the way that everything was described and how it was very decadent and glorious, but then the fires were cold and everyone was wearing masks and they were all wearing black except for the servers. And for a second, I thought, wow, gender equality is tight trousers and blouse thingies because they spent a lot of time describing what the servers are wearing. But yeah, it, it was certainly an introduction. And then surprise, um, the bad guy isn't dead yet. Which would make sense, considering <laughs> that there's a lot of books in this series. Yeah, there's like 13 more. Yeah, there's a whole lot more. But Rand was so sure that Shaitan is dead. He, oh, uh, he continues to be sure. <laughs> it's not a past tense. Okay, so let's actually get into the chapter. Uh, so it starts off with a man named Bors. He is in a cold, dark chamber, like a big... Uh, this chamber's pretty thick. Uh, thick both in size and in number of people in it. Like you said, beyond they're hiding behind multiple layers of disguise. Um, Bors Except talks, leaving very identifiable signifiers visible. Yeah, some of them are doing great. Some of them are absolutely not. Like, some of them literally just put the mask on and walked in. And then some of them are like Bors, where he... Like, he put a disguise on, and then another disguise, and then another disguise, and then he actually got dressed to go to this meeting yeah. where he hoped no one would recognize and him. And he's even thinking of himself in a name that isn't his. Yeah. So, we very quickly are getting the feeling that there's something going on, which is cult-like. Um, there's fires burning in the fireplaces, but they give off no heat. All of the servants that move around the room are perfectly identical but they, like, don't have souls. They're described as dead eyes, and they are all, like, handcrafted to be as attractive as possible. So, Bors is looking around the room. He is, like, noting where it looks like people are from, and it looks like pretty much everywhere across the Westlands, including people from the Tower, uh, the highest levels of governments yeah the um Aes Sedai he sees was the biggest problem i had with the like disguises mm -hmm. he said the woman was enveloped in black till nothing showed but her fingers on her right hand rested a gold ring in the shape of a serpent eating its own tail it's like you went through all the trouble to disguise yourself and wrap yourself up in a black cloak just to leave the most identifiable part of your identity visible the only part of you that's visible and I think this is sort of the beginning of us hearing about how smart the Aes Sedai are, but then seeing the contrary over and over again. Um, there are spoiler reasons for that that are hotly debated, but uh, we can't get into them yet. What is the age audience for these books? I think they're probably like, the upper end of quote-unquote young adult okay it's probably like mid to later teens i was just wondering are we being hand-fed things or are we supposed to mystery yet out 
you're supposed to mystery it out, but Not they right will now. also just tell you when it's time for you to know. Okay. I was actually just thinking about that. There's a specific thing that I can't tell you about because it's a spoiler right now. But there's a thing later on that was specifically like me picking stuff up because I already knew the information. But then by the time that it becomes important that you know, they have A, made it extremely obvious, and then B, they just tell you by the time that it's relevant. Okay. Yeah. So from one side, a set of double doors open, and a pair of Trollocs and a Merdral enter the room, and instantly everyone is afraid. Um, I think they all fall to their knees, and they are like quietly re-swearing their oaths to the Dark One. Above the Merdral's head, a phantasmal image of Baal Zaman appears, uh, floating in the air. He is speaking to them. I don't remember if Rand in the first book describes him as looking as beat up as he does in this prologue, but it sounds like he's had a tough time. Yeah, might have something to do with the end of the Eye of the World. Maybe. Um, side note, I'm definitely just viewing him as Thanos with, like, just purple man. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be envisioning as this evil guy as, but I'm just seeing purple, dude. Purple? I don't know, he just seems purple. <laughs> and so I'm just, I guess now I'm just seeing Thanos. He's, like, wrinkled and burned and eyes of fire and... Raisin Thanos. <laughs> okay. Okay, I know I know that's not relevant at all, but especially with the whole bow down to me, Wizard of Oz style floating head thing, I was just, it's Raisin Thanos. It is very Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, Raisin Thanos summons some images of the three boys in front of the assembled crowd, uh, saying that they all need to be captured at all costs, uh, killed if this is not possible. And that one of them is the dragon reborn. Who could it be? <laughs> so Baalzaman starts to do this thing that's A, kind of cool, B, could be cooler, uh, but C, comes back later, um, <laughs> where he like individually speaks to each person without actually moving and without anyone else able to hear. But it's not simultaneous which seems like it would be i mean if you're already going to the trouble of establishing that like this character has the ability to speak directly into and then pull thoughts out of somebody's mind in a conversational context it seems like you would also say well they can just do that instantly i figured it was bureaucracy power play like yeah, make you my you my dark minions will wait Hearing nothing in your own time. You know, I guess that makes sense. Also, if he's injured, I, I was assuming it was partially the injured thing and then partially a power play of bow down to me, wait for your turn. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense to me. In this bit, Balzaman states his goal. He says... Soon the wheel of time will be broken. Soon the great serpent will die. And with the power of that death, the death of time itself, your master will remake the world in his own image for this age and all ages to come. And 
eh, eh. It's like, okay. Um, yeah, that is definitely Balsamon's goal. I don't think he's lying here. Our quarterly projections see me. <laughs> Sorry. See me breaking the wheel of time. There's so much <laughs> to reveal still. So, Bors gets his instructions. Uh, he is commanded to continue his work where he is, command his men to capture the boys if possible, and to not mention... I listed certain things, which it seems like I don't remember what those certain things are. I suspect if they had been stated, I would have noted them down. But yeah, it sort of goes uh, ellipses into the details of the instructions. It does mention him returning to Terabon, though. Okay, well, hold on, because Bors gets some images implanted in his mind. Yeah, but then he uh, gets them, right? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's important for us to know. Um, there's a woman in white who disappears, a man armored like an insect fighting with a sword, a golden horn blowing a single note, and a wolf ripping out his throat. Oh no, what could those be? I have no idea. <laughs> I feel like, are you being facetious? Do you have an idea? <laughs> I think I have an idea. Okay. I mean, half of those have been established already. Yeah. And then, yes, he is shown to his room and changes back into his normal clothes. Uh, he is a white cloak, specifically a member of the Questioners, a.k.a. the Inquisition. And, yeah, he returns to Terabon, which I think is where they rule from? I love it when the filthy torture police are evil, you know? just makes me so happy yeah they just got to be double evil you know it's not enough to oppress your people you got to actively side with the destruction of the world imagine not siding with satan imagine not being awful but i mean he's a white cloak. he literally can't yeah Wait, so i mean is, Sa uh, is shaitan supposed to be sort of like a reimagining of satan I, know I mean, some other. I think Shaitan is like an. Uh, I don't know if it's. I think it's Arabic. Um, like that's the name of Satan. Let me Google right? that. Actually, let me Ecosia that. <laughs> Fact checking will ruin everything. Yeah, Shaitan are evil spirits comparable to demons or devils in Islamic theology and mythology. Hog. Well, I learned something today. Well, good. None of this will be on the recording anyway. So, so chapter one, the flame of Tarvalin. Is that how we're pronouncing it? That's how, listen, I'm going to get real cherry picking about the pronunciations in the audiobook, but this is one where I'm going to go with it. They say Tarvalin. Oh God, I'm going to have to recalibrate. <laughs> Just recalibrate to be perfectly in line with what I say, because I'm probably going to pronounce every name that we ever say before either of you. And I'm going to promptly not use them and come up with my own words. Uh, I will say, when we get to some of the words from the culture at the end of this book, I'm pretty much just going to need the pronunciation guide open in front of me at all times, because the audiobook finally hits some of those words, and they 
are wild. <laughs> so the flame of... Maybe we can compromise. Tar... Val... I'm not going to try. The flame of TV. The flame of the TV. <laughs> the TV is on fire. At the Wheel of Time turns, ages come and pass, blah, blah, blah. Mountains of Doom. So Rand and Lan are practicing the sword in Faldara. They're like on top of a tower or something. Rand is doing his best just to not let Lan hit him. And the wind that comes from the uh, the mountain of doom, the mountains of doom, excuse me, which usually those opening sections are just kind of like fluff. There's not usually, you know, like plot relevant <laughs> winds coming from wherever the opening <laughs> paragraph says. Yeah, but this time the wind is an active player in this chapter. <laughs> Spooky winds. Can we get 200 years of backstory on this wind? Uh, so he Rand is getting pushed back by Lan and I think Lan like goes for a stab and the wind like turns into a solid force behind Rand and pushes him forward onto the practice sword which like shatters and stabs into Rand's side but it's just a little scratch don't worry about it is this just, you know, low-key assassination temps By starting? the Dark One, I think, maybe? It's just like, hmm, testing you out a little. Are you going to die yet? I mean, Lan says that strange stuff happens. Strange things happens. It's fine. This is fine. There's a thing that comes up in the fourth book that sort of is reminiscent of this. Sort of weird things happen around the boys. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Better than sometimes weird stuff happens. I don't know. You just learn to live with it here. Yeah. So they sit down and Rand starts... Uh, I'm sorry, Land starts telling Rand a story about um, power-wrought weapons. Because it turns out that Rand's sword, his heron-marked sword, is a power-wrought weapon. Um, which just means that it's functionally indestructible, um, never loses its edge, and only the greatest of the weapons from the Age of Legends were made as such, infused with the power. Um, we also talk about Angriol and Saw Angriol, which could single-handedly level a city Hint, hint. Keep that one in mind. He tells Rand that both of their... That both Lan and Rand's swords are these power-wrought uh, blades. But that Rand's is especially... Um, what's the word? Rare. Because it's power-wrought and also heron-marked. Bion, had they talked about... I don't remember how much they talk about... Uh, Angriel and Sa Angriel in Eye of the World. Or like if any of this information is new or if it's just a refresher. I feel like those are definitely capital words I've heard before. Wow. Um, they didn't really seem significant beyond the, the, the naming scheme continues to be fascinating in this world. 
Yeah, he's actually sketched out the language pretty thoroughly. Yeah, I found a dictionary recently. Mm. So, Rand uh, reveals that he has been hanging around the town, even though he is free to go, um, because he doesn't, he's not ready to leave the people that he has known and grown up with uh, to maybe never see them again. Because he is pretty convinced that the plan is, like, go live in the woods so that when he goes crazy and kills himself with the power, at least he doesn't take anybody else with him. It's literally him being like, no, I'm too dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) This power, (laughs) I can't control it. Uh, He also needs to get some answers from Warren. But she won't talk to him at all. Yeah. Yeah, she has hashtag ghosted him. <laughs> I wasn't sure how much of this was his perspective or um, her actively doing that, as in, like, with... Um, I keep referencing other stories because that's where my brain goes, but with Dumbledore and Harry, when Harry's doing his angst mode, where Dumbledore is actively avoiding him, but at the same time Harry's being an angst fest, I wasn't sure how much extent was Rand just being an edgy, edgy boy and puberty, so she's staying away for a bit to give him some space, or her actively deciding to ghost him. Well, at the end of this section... We see that her plan is to let him do whatever he wants. Yeah. So that might be part of it. Yeah. Her plan is like, you can do whatever you want. I know that what you're going to want to do is spend time with your friends before you go crazy and die. So I'm not going to let them do whatever they want. And therefore, you'll follow them. So Rand and Lan resume their training uh, when... Some horns start blowing and a caravan that they did not notice uh, rolls up to town. It's the Amerlin seat. Amerlin? Amerlin? I always said Amerlin, but the audiobook says Amerlin. Oh, God. I thought it was like the flower Amaryllis. Excuse me? That I'm pretty sure that's a flower Amaryllis. I mean, I wouldn't know. I was asking. That's how I was saying it in my head. Yeah, I said Amerlin. Then it's Amerlin. Uh, yeah, so the caravan is from Tarvalin. Uh, Lan says it's the Amerlin, that she's come in person, and then tells Rand that it would be better if he had already left. Uh, Why are you still here? Yeah. And then uh, he says, your lessons are done, sheep herder, which is actually <laughs> pretty cool. I won't lie. Essentially, it's telling us that Rand is going to actually have to start making choices that affect the story. Yeah. And he's a sheep herder, just in case and you he- forgot. <laughs> in case you forgot. This sheep. tells us two important things about the plot. One, Rand is a sheep herder. Uh, so, Lan leaves. Rand is, like, stunned for a second, and then realizes that while he's been stunned, the Aesidae have moved into town. And he grabs his shirt and runs off. So chapter two, The Welcome. Rand rushes back to his room. Like, every single person that he passes is unintentionally taunting him. Because they're like, oh man, it's so sick, you're going to meet the Amerlin. <laughs> Aren't you glad about all these Aes Sedai, Rand? Lord Rand. And, and he's like, 
crying as he's running. I mean, he's not really, but that's Leave how I imagine. Alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys are bullying me. Uh, so he makes it back to his room. There's like 10 women in there. They're all female servants. Um, they're all taking his stuff away because they were instructed, hey, the stuff that Rand brought is fine and all, but he needs new stuff. So get rid of the old stuff and here's the new stuff. Put it in his room. Don't take no from him for an answer. So Rand finally convinces them to leave the room so he can change clothes. Yeah, this starts sort of a through line in this section where every woman in the whole place talks about what a snack the boys are. Yeah. And he's like, my honor! <laughs> yeah. Aw, baby Zuko. <laughs> my honor. This also starts another through line of Rand sort of becoming lordly on accident. Yeah, sometimes he tries, but generally it just kind of happens to him. Like with all this, he suddenly has a bunch of fancy clothes. Yeah. And also uh, it has a literal dragon, like, embroidered <laughs> into the into the neck. Thank God that nobody knows what the dragon looks like, so you can just wear it. So he grabs enough stuff for the road, including Tom's bundle, and he... Uh, I don't know if you remember Beyond. The He has a moment of emotion with the harp and... Yes. Yeah, I mean, you just read it, so I'm sure yes. you would know. Yes. But he keeps the bundle with him at all times. Anytime that the bundle is not mentioned, assume that it is implied to be in his possession. He is carrying the bundle. So he runs off, tries to get his horse. Stable hand won't let him get the horse. My lord, no horse for you. No horse, sir. Sorry, I, what's a horse? I've never... Uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting that they all just sort of think he's a lord, because we talked about before how he holds himself as different from the rest of them, and also just sort of by naming conventions, the Al in his name makes them think he's a lord. Well, that's why I asked if all had significance in the first time I saw it. Well, it definitely doesn't have significance where he's from. Yeah. But here, I think they just think that. Well, plus he's traveling with an Aes Sedai, so. Mm -hmm. There's a lot I, that goes I, into it. I just felt very validated when I when I saw that they were responding because of that name, because I, I, I had questions about the name when I first saw it. So thanks, characters. I think it might mean the same thing, like son of, but maybe in this region, only like highborn people use it. Well, probably because, like, why would you need to know that this person is son of this person, son of this person, unless you're purposely tracing the lineage? So, he can't get a horse. He goes to a gate with... Okay, no, this is in the next chapter that they name the guard. So, he goes to a gate. People at the gate are like, sorry, nobody out. Orders from above. So, he's trapped. And also worth noting is that Rand says, but who gave you the order? And they're like, yeah. I don't know. I assume it's Angel Man. Yeah. Uh, see, here's my only problem. See, I've like positioned myself in this podcast as the funny one of the three of us. You but think you so, huh? <laughs> I think we all have our funny moments. And I think insisting that you are the funny one makes you not the funny one. 
Whatever. It's like insisting that you are wise makes you not wise. Please continue, dear host. Anyway. <laughs> the fact that you remembered and brought up the angel man thing makes it way less funny when I do it. So you're kind of stepping on... Listen, this I've spent a lot of effort building this brand. <laughs> Hashtag brands. Isn't, aren't I the one that first said Angel Man, though? Listen, I don't think I want to talk about it anymore. Who's appropriating what now? Let's just move on. Chapter 3, Friends and Enemies. Rand... I don't remember how he confirms. I guess he just asks a second time. Are you sure I can't leave? And the guards are like, no, dude, we just said that. And one of the soldiers that he meets while trying to get out is named Masima. This character has not been named again in the audiobook, so I don't know. I guess it could be like Masema. Doesn't like him. Doesn't like him. I'm going to say Masima, because that's what I've been saying in my brain. Um, Masima's like, you're a jerk. I don't like you. And also, I can't let you out. So Rand, like, runs throughout the entire keep, trying to find a way out, and then just trying to avoid being seen, until he manages to find um, Matt, Perrin, and Loyal, who are all... At a dice game, fun little note here that Loyal isn't allowed to play because nobody will take money from him if he loses, and so they don't want to play dice with him. Is it because he's so big and intimidating? No, it's because he's very respected. Just a yeah, good boy. They yeah. respect the Ogier. Okay. Yeah, they're just being three good boys, and then... Well, the soldiers are the good boys. Matt would take money from yeah. just about anyone. <laughs> well... Yeah, Perrin and Loyal. Yeah, well, who knows about Perrin? He's got those golden eyes. Yeah. So, Loyal continues to be the best. Rand literally likes Loyal more than his supposed best friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, put these two, pick them up, put them in the garbage, <laughs> hug Loyal. Okay. He makes Loyal sad, and that's bad. Yeah, he talks to both of them about leaving, where he's going to go, uh, where might be safe. Rand is intentionally mean to them to try and make the break hurt less. This is known as white fanging. <laughs> <sighs> go! I don't want you around! Yeah. Throw rocks. Yeah. Or like the, um, I know I've referenced this to you, Vion, the Spongebob, like, just get out of here, you stupid, dumb animal. Unnecessary heroics. Yeah. That help no one. And he does it to Loyal, too. He's like, Loyal, you're so big and dumb. Look at your <laughs> face. And Loyal is, like, holding back tears, like, my face isn't dumb, Rand, you suck. Yeah, this is sort of frustrating to me. Oh, it, yeah, it's very bad. Like, yes. I was talking about how in the beginning of this book, I feel like the characters are more alive and less tools of the plot. But this specific thing feels very contrived and very written and very for a purpose. 
Yeah, I think that for some amount of this second book, uh, like definitely the opening, and then I know that we'll get to it, but I know that you have problems with a lot of Rant's behavior in book three. I think that after that point, like up to there, there are definitely parts where it's kind of like, okay, Rand needs to perform this action now. And so he's going to do so. It's been so prophesized. Yeah. I mean, I think there's reasoning if you ask me, but I won't fight you on it. So he leaves the room, is still walking around and runs into Egwene. He explains the situation to her after seeing that he isn't going to be able to pull the same trick on her. Did you have something to add to this particular conversation? Or was it somewhere else that that thing you texted me about happens? What? The thing about Egwene sitting on him? Yeah, you were very excited. (laughs) Awesome. Do it. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I I don't know if this makes me like Egwene more. It might. (laughs) (laughs) I approved. You approved of somebody just being like, Rand, you're dumb. I'm sitting on you now. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, Rand was just giving me some serious uh, Sasuke vibes as well as just nonsensical protagonist hero. It's just, just don't. Just do your thing. Don't make this big deal out of it. Well, You're just he's, hurting yourself and everyone. I mean, he's going to destroy the world and kill a bunch of people. And also maybe lose the battle with reality to Satan. So No, I'm... Too dangerous. <laughs> You're gonna be dangerous either way, so you might as well like not be awful to everybody in the meantime. I think this is why I don't write very well. Everybody just accepts their destiny very quickly. <laughs> no, it's more just like um it's 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 really hard to write stuff like this and not just give up. Continuing a <laughs> far away from my fan fiction pursuits. Where are we? What are we doing? Uh, Egwene decides to try and find Rand somewhere to hide. And so she takes him to the dungeon where an extremely evil dark friend that Moraine was like, this person is beyond the concept of evil, is waiting. (laughs) And also permanently knows Rand's location. I better bring Rand there. Yeah, and Egwene is totally not curious about the fact that the guards at the dungeon are continuously getting more and more evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all very bad, and Egwene is really something. This is fine. This is fine. No need for concern, citizen. Padden Fane is, I have here in all caps, and I did the thing where there's spaces between each letter, uh, the word UNWELL. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if you know, but the battle's never done, Althor. Yeah. Hey, I quoted that later. Why don't they kill him? Uh, there's so much they could learn from him. Now that he... No man is so something in the shadow that he cannot walk in the light. Yeah. Egwene seems to feel like she was getting something out of him. Yeah. Okay. But then also, um, Patton Fane brings up something about Mordeth knowing more than all of you, which is sort of strange to me, because isn't Mordeth sort of the, like, diametric opposite horseshoe theory of the Dark One? 
Um, yeah, Mordith is like, I don't know. I guess I would see the Dark One as being like the metaphysical concept of evil. Where it's just like it can take any form as long as evil is done. Whereas Mordith has more in line with like the concept of human on human evil like the depths of darkness within a person's being yeah i get that i'm just more curious about what does pain know about mortith like not pain fane what like <laughs> i also did that i did yeah. that for so long <laughs> like, what exactly does fane have inside information about mortith like that doesn't track to me uh i mean he was also there in shatter logoth Huh, I guess. I think we'll come to that. I'm guessing there's just some plot armor or whatever. Plot armor has a name in the series. Please refer to it by its proper noun. Tavaren. Thank you. Okay, so they're watching Pain as he... Fane. Dang it! I just did it! <laughs> they're watching Fane as he is, like, losing his mind just talking to himself about how the battle is never over. And then Egwene's like, let's peace out. We'll go to the women's apartments instead. Uh, and she's going to have him pose as her personal servant. This is my boy. This is my boy. What up? It's me, the dragon, your boy. <laughs> he pulls it off well enough to get in and we end the chapter. We move on to chapter four, Summoned. It's a Moraine chapter. We in there. <laughs> it's a very long Moraine chapter. It is a very long chapter. You warned me about the length of the prologue, and I didn't think it was too bad since you warned me, but then this chapter was very long. Yeah, I think that, like, this section that we read doesn't... I mean, a lot of stuff happens, like, there's a lot of content, but I don't think that the amount of content matches the amount of pages. Because on my app, this section was... 22-23% of the whole book, which it does not contain 22-23% to 23 of the events of the book. I think because he's trying to answer questions we might have about Aesodai and how they're structured, and the, the world, culture, etc. history building, but at the same time, I feel as if I'm left with more questions about the Aesodai after this pile of words. Well, that's good, because that means that there's so much to discover. I mean, Thanks. a lot does get brought up here. Yeah. Specifically, well, okay, we can go yeah. back. Both of order. you feel free to interrupt because I'll be honest. Reading some of this, when you say beyond that, like questions are brought up. Maybe I'm forgetting what it's like to not know things, but I didn't. I mean, unless you hear it in my notes, I didn't even recognize that any of this stuff would cause questions. So how nice. Well, I just mean, please feel free to interject. It's it's um, I think what's interesting is we're, we're uh, introduced to Moraine as being super powerful, does all these things. And then in this chapter, she's being uh, scolded, among other things. Yeah, she is pretty strong in the power compared to the like characters that we have access to. That, like, are moving about in the world 
she is among the stronger ones at the start of the series, uh, which definitely gives her some social power, but also it doesn't give her all of the social power. And Aes Sedai are all manipulators. Yeah, they kind of think of her as like a problem child. Yeah. She's unruly and cannot be ruled. So she's preparing herself for a formal meeting with the Amerlin, and there's a knock at the door. It's two of her fellow Aes Sedai, and oh man, this was not a problem until I thought it in my brain. Anaya? Anybody? Sure. sure. It's Anaya, uh, who is a blue, and Leandrin, who is a red. And so the multitude of named Aes Sedai begins. Oh god. <laughs> this is gonna be bad. So, Moraine kind of doesn't let them into the room that I don't remember what she has in there that they're not allowed to see. Maybe it's the banner? But I think so. Yeah. But she just kind of sweeps out, and then they're all walking to the Amerlin. Uh, Anaya is excited. And they discuss Moraine coming back to the tower, um, how there are three new false dragons. Um, I think only one of them can channel, they said. And Moraine thinks privately that Egwene has uh, enough strength of will to become the Amerlin one day. The three of them also discuss the all capitals Great Hunt of the Horn being called in Ilian, uh, as well as some of the outlying cultures of the Westlands, stirring that their prophesied saviors will be coming soon. And like rumors of rumors of fighting uh, to the West. Like there's something going on um, out at the western coast. So um, one thing that I wanted to point out in this section is that when they're talking about the new false dragons, Moraine says she was not sure Leandrin saw much difference between men and Trollocs. She was not sure any of the Red Aja did. And uh, this is a little bit of a evil man-haters kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the Reds are all like that. It's just a matter of degrees. Yeah, I mean, I know that. It's just sort of a little... Trying to think of the right word for it. I'm sure Bion would know. Women written by men. Yeah, it's like, is this... Is this what Robert Jordan thinks a feminist is? Probably. Coughs in 1990, 91, whatever. Honestly, that could still be a coughs in 2019. There's people who legitimately think this. Yeah. Um, hey. in, in regards to the Ace that I've and, and their collective selves, I was getting a bit of the um, diamonds from Steven Universe vibes in how um, they have their governing policies and attitudes towards how to treat life prophecies decisions etc and i was also how many acidi groups are there uh there are officially seven and i think i've read that there are about a thousand acidi alive at any given point in time maybe i don't remember if i well, was they say them. in this section that right now their numbers are declining yeah, yeah, I mean, it's downhill. Uh, and they also say that some factions have more than others. Yes. And so, 
do people choose which one they become? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's no sorting hat. No. When you're raised to a Sedai, they ask you which one you want to go with. So part of me makes me think, are there ways where, where each group are like, you should join mine because we do this. Um, I mean, it's like a 300 plus year long commitment when you decide to join one. So they're probably more like, you know, checking out all of the young ones and going with the ones that can already be manipulated to join their side rather than like going for people that are totally anti that. And then another thing when I was reading this, it just, it it felt like whenever there's a matriarchal power source with the whole mother, daughter, child thing, it was interesting, but it also felt like anytime there are females in power, their power structure ends up being described like this. I don't know. And I wasn't the biggest fan. Yeah. I will say that your taste for this like looking back on the series will depend on how let me put it this way how do you feel about the fact that the main characters have plot armor because there's a thing in the universe that gives them plot armor disgusted okay well (laughs) then you might not like this by the end of the series i mean i didn't really come in expecting to like this series um so i guess i'm not surprised in that way but you're liking it more than you thought you would right yeah i mean uh civil war i don't hate Egwene, even though i guess i'm supposed to be based on the fandom whatever snippets and Nanave has potential and Moraine is interesting and the concept of Aes Sedai is fascinating especially if you consider that there once were male Aes Sedai and I want to know about more of each of the factions because it seems like while they kind of work together it also seems like some are actively working against the other ones but yeah it's um it's like yay ladies but then it's written by a man who is not necessarily very yay ladies and so it just feels a bit uncomfortable in parts yeah i sort of have like i think i heard this on a different podcast talking about a different fantasy series but it sort of codified for me my problem with the way robert jordan writes about gender i think that robert jordan essentially in his writing at least sort of portrays men and women as separate species that could never hope to understand each other sort of like absolute boomer logic but i I feel that's where this is all coming from it's it's disappointing because there's honestly not that much difference between men and women even if you are trying to argue a biological thing um there for example, if aliens with higher levels of intelligence than us came down to Earth, they'd probably think we were some monolithic thing because genetically there's not that much difference. It's all social, cultural, environment, how we raise ourselves. So, I don't know, just just the way it paints how these villages have been raised, how these women are their roles in society and powers they may have in regards to government or just their weird magic. 
it feels like there's so much more potential and I would definitely read books just about Aes Sedai and how they work with the magic. But I don't know. I, I, I wanted to like this chapter. I really wanted to like it, especially once I saw when reading on the ebook how much text was in this chapter. But I just couldn't like it. I was just tired by reading it. Well, I think it's good that you're already aware enough of the fact that the men and women are written as like separate beings that can't understand each other enough to be paying attention to it. I mean, it like comes from a place that is already wrong in its conception, but if nothing else, I mean, there is stuff we learn later about like the, I don't know how to describe it. I guess the like base level of how magic works between men and women working together that sounds like a rebuttal to the thing that he is currently establishing. I think we'll have to get there and read it before I can talk about it in full because I don't want to spoil it. Sounds good. So they okay. get to the Amarillo Sea. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. Finally, after a long, rambling conversation that goes on tangents, they reach the Hammerlin Sea. It's like a metaphor. For us. For us. Um, so, they reach the Hammerlin, who is named Suon. I know it's Suon. I Don't thought it was Suon. It is definitely Suon. Both because it's in my brain and in the audiobook. Okay, that's just ugly. Suan Sanch. You sure it's not Sanche? Whatever. <laughs> I'll compromise. Suan Sanch. And her Keeper of the Chronicles, which they pronounce Leonie. What? Yeah, but it's gotta be Leanne, Leanne. right? Yeah. I, don't, I just thought it was Leanne. I also thought it was Leanne. Beyond? Leanne, but magical. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so Suan asks Leanne to leave. Uh, I have it written down here in my notes, parentheses, more like Levan. <laughs> I think you're trying to be funny, but it's just not happening. I thought it was really funny when I wrote it. Stop trying to make fetch happen. I will make fetch happen. So once it's just Moraine and Suan alone in the room... Uh, the emotional walls come down. And the They're total th- bros. Yeah. They are total... B, is there like a female... <laughs> no, because women don't exist. No, um... Whoa. Well, ugh. Pardon me, the, the bitterness is coming out. There's the whole gals being pals thing, but that's also kind of a joke where they're just really good friends when they're actually in lesbians. Okay, just gals being pals. That is in this series. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So the two of them have clearly known each other since they were young. They're huge gal pals. And they're plotting something together that um, one of them mentions will like get them killed if anybody finds out. Stilled. Stilled. Stilled and killed. Stilled was terrifying because it gave me 
the same sort of vibes that um, there's this uh, book called The Yellow Wallpaper about how to treat this woman. She was locked in a yellow room with no stimulus because they thought giving women stimulus would make them more crazy. But being stilled... I know it's in regard to their magic and how they relate to the world, but stilling a woman is, it's, it seems like how you might treat a woman for hysteria. It, it was very scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of would use it on a woman who was quote unquote hysterical in the series. I mean, that's not like you wouldn't do it to anyone who was like that, but if you wanted to get, yeah. They said that every Ace can name the other Aesidae that have been uh, stilled and know them by heart and can count them on two hands. So it's not super common. No. It's more about, like, if they commit a crime against the tower. Yeah, like a crime that is so bad that they have to no longer exist as an Aesidae. But is, is it the chapter where, is it betrayal to betray a traitor? Is, is that... Is this the chapter where they discuss that? I don't think so. Okay. Um, they do talk about that, but not, I don't think, in this coming chapter. Because it's just interesting just to consider what what makes the tower righteous in its way and whatnot. Is it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, from their perspective, it definitely yeah. is. Also, this chapter establishes that Suan Sanch speaks in fishing metaphors. Yes. <laughs> Only fishing <laughs> metaphors. Sometimes she's very lucky and the fishing metaphors line up with something that could be described as leadership, but she isn't always that lucky. <laughs> That's why I thought it was sweet rather than whatever we're calling her. Is that a fish? No, but um, S-U-I, uh, you, it's word linkage to water. Like um, water in Chinese, I'm going to butcher it because I butcher the Chinese language and I apologize, but it's shui. And then I think in Japanese, it's a ver- It's I think it's spelled S-U-I. I don't remember which clan of Aesidae she is color-wise. She is. She's, she's the Amerlin. Okay. The Amerlin is of all Ajas and none. Okay. But she but was I blue. I was getting some blue diamond vibes from her. She's just a watery lady. Yeah. Well, she grew up as a fisherman's daughter. Okay, yeah. So she's just water. Yeah. She's she she's a water lady. She is she's made of primarily water, actually. Salt water. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So chapter five is the shadow in Shinar. What? Is that how Shinar? Shinar? I thought it was like Shinar. But whatever. There's some shadows. There are some shadows. <laughs> Somewhere shadows exist. <laughs> that's all that's important right now. So the chapter starts with a long argument between Moraine and Suan over the plan that the two of them have and the consequences of carrying it out. We learn what happens to stilled Amerlins and that only two of them have been stilled since the breaking, both of whom were reds. I believe this is where they mention that the stilled Amerlins, like, were forced to scrub pots in the kitchen until they died. Manual labor until death? Yeah, but as, like, an example. Like, hey, don't get too big for your... not britches, but skirts. Like, look, even the Amerlin could be forced to scrub pots if she messes up. Yeah, and they Aren't say that... Aren't britches just of- underwear? 
Don't worry what? about it. Sorry, it's because Tyler said brig for britches, but then said skirts, and my brain went, aren't britches underwear? But yes, please continue, Jesse. Yeah. Um, one of the Amerlins that got still that they talk about is named Bonwin, who tried to use Arthur Hawkwing for a puppet to control the world, and so nearly destroyed Tarvalon. Hmm. Just, uh, His name pops up a whole bunch. Arthur Hawkwing? Yeah. Yeah. He's an important historical figure. I hear his armies are returning. Maybe. So, Suan confirms two things for us. That Rand is Tavarin enough to instill fear, because I guess she has a talent to see people who are Tavarin, and also that Aes Sedai are capable of feeling fear, which at this point was maybe not really established. That like, Aes Sedai have learned to fear. Yeah. So, Moraine lays out the basic version of the plan which is send Rand, Matt, and Perrin to a place called Ilion with the Horn of Valir, without them realizing that she's manipulating them into going, and then she will go there separately, waiting for them when they arrive, and when they get there, they will need her help, and she will swoop in to be the savior, and they'll love her. Huh, I didn't really catch that. That seems like a shoujo manga plot. I mean, it's not exactly a good plot to try and make happen. You're kind of assuming a lot. It's a lot of assumptions that end in this person saving, but then probably won't be. Yeah. So that's the plot. And then there's a line break. We cut to a white cloak who we have uh, met before. But it's not really a line break. Suddenly, it's just, at least on the ebook, there's what the paragraph ends and the next paragraph starts. Okay, if you think that's bad, the audiobook has no indication that a line break occurs. It is very disconcerting. Uh, it's, it's just the paragraph ends. There's not a line break. It's just the next paragraph begins. Maybe your settings are strange because on mine... Anyway, it's not important right now. But it was not friendly. I was like, at least when fan fiction's writer, they add an emoticon or something <laughs> between there. You know, give a reader an idea what's going on. It's the guy that was in charge of the group that captured Perrin and Egwene in the first book. His name is Geofram? Geofram? Jeffram. Jeff Georgie. <laughs> uh, Jeffram Bornholt. I almost said Jeffram Jefferson. Uh, so he is being commanded to take 2,000 white cloaks into Stealthily. Stealthily. With all stealth, and if you can't be stealthy enough that nobody sees you, be sure that nobody is alive when you're done. Uh, to deal Very with, righteous. Yeah. Uh, they're going to go deal with something. Maybe it's Arthur Hawkwing's armies returned. Oh. Whispers of whispers. Whispers of whispers. I sure hope we don't get any more beats about Arthur Hawkwing's armies returned. Otherwise, I might have to start believing it. We cut again. This... The end of this chapter contains like three cuts that are all very quick. So we cut again to Leandrin, uh, one of the Aes Sedai there in Faldara. She's moving through the keep, just kind of thinking, and she makes her way to the rooms of Angel Man's sister, who is, I guess, reading, I don't even know, some... Cosmo. They're reading yeah. Cosmo. Yeah, they're basically just reading Cosmo. Uh, it's Angel Man's sister and a bunch of the like minor ladies are sitting around reading Cosmo together. 
and she makes everybody except Angel Man's sister leave, talks to her about dark friends, and we have to figure out. Is it really out. talking? Well, there's talking before, and then there's the, like... Extreme threatening? Extreme threatening slash using the power to inflict pain and compel you to want to carry out Extreme misuse of power. Yeah. Um, power both lowercase and capital. What? Do do we know at this point what color of Aesodai she is? Uh, yeah, red. they mentioned she's red. Okay. Yeah. The red is not having some good advertising going on. No. Uh, some might say that the red are never presented as good. Beyond's eyebrows are slowly creeping up. <laughs> I know. That's what I was talking about with, like, hashtag this is what feminists look like. Yeah. Uh... At least most of the other Ajas either have less screen time or have or at least terrible. one. Yeah, have at least one good person. I think the Reds might have one in the series. Because originally I was just thinking Reds are more of the Vestal Virgin style of magic users, but then this stuff happens and. No, they're Oof. like hashtag kill all men Radfems. And they're evil, which is yeah. what frustrated me. <laughs> them having this opinion makes them bad. Oh. Let's continue. <laughs> okay. Um, Angel Man's sister, whose name I did not write down. Amalisa. Amalisa. That's right. Uh, she's compelled to get all of the serving women that she can and herself to search for Rand. Just try to find him anywhere uh, Leandrin isn't clear about what should be done after that, just that he needs to be found. I presume the implication was just come tell me where he is. I'm, if, if she's hate all men, why didn't she manipulate a man into being her puppet? Why? Because she doesn't want to deal with him. But why would you hurt another woman? Uh, cause you don't want to deal with a man. She doesn't have great love for women either. Yeah. It's just like. <sighs> she's kind of a jerk. Where is your solidarity? <laughs> Like, at most, her solidarity would be to the Red Aja. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Leandrin... But also, the fact that she's looking for Rand sort of suggests she has another loyalty. Hmm. She couldn't possibly be the person during the prologue. <laughs> oh, thank God. You figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Leandrin is just not a good person in general. That's why I was wondering if she was still technically the red, or is it the thing where evil is constantly in politics and often the evil politicians are secretly even more evil? It would be like she's wearing a red dress and then Over she, a black dress. Yeah, yeah. She like pulls it off. It's one that's attached with Velcro and she like pulls it off like it's a Yakuza cutscene and just <laughs> throws it back and then there's a black dress underneath Alrighty. Yeah. It's like, it's not that she isn't Red Aja. She is, and she holds those beliefs. She is just also a servant of the Dark One. Yeah. Dark One comes first, followed by Red Aja, followed by uh, a bunch of, like, blank spaces, and then everyone that isn't men, and then men. I can see the gears turning. <laughs> no, I just, I, from... I mean, again, I don't know much about the Red Aesodai, but it doesn't seem like you can be an Aesodai actively an Aesodai and also perpetuate the Dark One. Well, you can do it stealthily. It just, 
if 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 this magic and this world has powerful change timelines to fit this one ever pattern, how can it still allow people to have their magic if they actively do the Well, because the pattern isn't inherently good. The pattern is just like the flow of time. Things can just happen. Like the only time that the pattern starts to get messed up is uh, like stuff relating specifically to the Dark One as an entity and stuff relating to like Tavarin. Okay. Yeah. Other than that, reality just kind of happens. It doesn't really care. No. Unless you're this specific group of whatever. Yeah. It just is what it is. Okay. Thank you. So we cut again, <laughs> the last cut in the chapter, to someone unexpected shows up to talk to Pat and Fane in the dungeons. He says something like, oh, I didn't expect it to be you. And it's very cryptic. Mysteries. Mysteries. Which leads us to chapter six, Dark Prophecy. So, Rand has a nightmare about Matt being stabbed with the dagger and Perrin tearing out his eyes. Uh, in this dream, Balzaman comes to him and says that it is never over between them. Rand Althor. Wakes- yeah. <laughs> You're an Althor. Uh, so, Rand wakes up. He's on like a pallet on the floor of Egwene's room with Nenev watching over him. They catch each other up on what's been going on with um, each of them individually. And Rand insists that the like people that are just out moving around, going through all of the rooms, are looking specifically for him. Nenev's like, nah, there's no way. Uh, and then Rand's like, oh wait, she's being kind of pretty right now. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, what? No, I was just... Yeah, I forgot that that section was in there. Where he's like, wait, Nanave's pretty. I shouldn't be thinking this. Also, Nanave has some good stuff in here. She says, light help me, Rand. You're becoming more Shinaran every day. Any day now, you'll start talking about your honor and asking peace to favor your sword. Yeah. It's almost like she's thinking of someone specifically. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Any part with Nenave is a good part with Nenave. Fight me. No, I agree. I like Nenave. I, I honestly kind of expected her to stab him with her knitting needles. You know, just a little bit, like a little, a warning, like, Rand, what are you doing? I mean, you- maybe she would after Rand says, Shaitan is dead. <laughs> and like, the entire place rocks with the force of evil. You sheep. You're not even a sheep herder anymore. You sheep. He's a woolhead. Yeah. How could you? She's going to have to box his ears. Shrink. Let me box your ears. You tall oaf. Ugh. Rand. I, 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 I really don't like Rand. And I think we all know this. Rand's great. The thing is, I don't think I know anything about him as a character, so I can't even hate him. He, yeah. I mean, he definitely is very different across each book in the first three books and then kind of even in the first four 
Because he can't decide what type of male protagonist he's having. Well, he just... Events occur. Well, Rand is also going through dragon puberty. Yeah, he is becoming the dragon. My honor. Where's the lie? So they're talking, and suddenly some alarm bells start to ring. That sound like, hey, we're under attack. Uh, Rand rushes out of the room to go and find Egwene who was last seen in the dungeon with Fane. Uh, on his way out, he runs into the Amerlin. Uh, and then, like, shoves past her. Yeah, they're, like, staring face to face. And I just thought it was cool. I This happens a lot, where you get one character's thoughts on something, and then from the other character's perspective later on, you get something that is enhanced by you knowing the thoughts of the first character. So, like... Rand reads her surprise and the expression on her face as anger, almost. But we know that when she looks at him, she is like almost she's like stunned with fear because of how strongly Tavarin he is. Yeah, like why is he so overpowered? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, He, like you said, he kind of pushes past her, and. He comes upon a trio of Trollocs and then proves that training is not as good as experience because he like poorly performs one form. It's so bad that the Trolloc in flexing on him pushes the other two back. And so they don't have time to kill him before a bunch of soldiers show up to save Rand. (laughs) Uh, Rand is sort of a dummy in this chapter. Later on, he literally dive rolls through a door for no reason. Yeah. He is tactical. (laughs) Um, So he continues on. He runs into a Merdral this time. Just escalating levels of, Rand, why are you doing this? Um, When Ingtar arrives to take it on. And sends Rand ahead to go after Egwene. Ingtar's like, you would just be in the way. You're not ready. I think he says something to the effect of, um, like, go get some experience killing Trollocs. I got this. Ingtar's really cool in this scene. Uh, So, Rand arrives at the dungeon, and there's some tough stuff waiting for him. (laughs) Yeah, this sort of raises the bar on the level of violence in this series. Yeah, um, I think this is where it might be good to go ahead and keep in mind that uh, Robert Jordan was a like an active soldier in the Vietnam War. Mm. Yeah, so like um, a bunch of stuff throughout the series, and also like interviews that I've read. It sounds like a lot of what goes on was informed by his experience there. And that messes you up. Yeah. Well, that's grim, because in this chapter, Rand opens a door and sees two severed heads laying on a table and someone hanging himself. Yeah. Yeah, it could be better. Uh, So, like you said, there's the severed heads, there's the guy hanging himself, there's a dude who's, like, um, trying to... Uh, tunnel through stone to the point where his fingers are like becoming bloody stumps Um, and there's profanities written in blood on the wall and a message to him specifically Rand 
Don't do it. We it will meet again on Toman Head. It is never over, Althor. And I just have it in my notes as, that's the good stuff. <laughs> mm, that's some good stuff right there. And then Rand does the thing. Uh, so Rand is really shook. Um, and he starts to try and erase some of the stuff uh, before going on. When Leandrin shows up and does something to Rand's brain that makes him very upset. <laughs> it's like needles I'm, of I'm ice. no puppet. <laughs> yeah. It's needles of ice into his brain. And there's something warm and glowing off in the distance that he tries to reach for to preserve himself. Pure dude magic. Well, the pure dude magic is gone. Okay. Now there's only tainted dude magic. Yeah. Uh. The dark dude magic. The DDM, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, so, luckily, Moraine shows up to save Rand. She's like, what is the meaning of this? And Leandrin quickly stops torturing Rand and is like, ow. Whistles with her hands behind her back. Yeah. Thumbs earlobe and hums softly. He was suspicious. I mean, he was. He was. was. Why would you wipe that away? That's just not, just don't. He is like actively suspicious, to be fair. It doesn't take a black Ashen member to notice. <laughs> um, and he's like, it was just so profane, I had to get rid of it. Yeah, I couldn't not. You would have done the same in my shoes. So, he goes to Fane's cell, because that's where Egwene was going. And he finds Egwene and Matt there. Unconscious. Yeah. Uh, Moraine says Egwene will be fine. But that someone has taken the dagger from Matt and that he needs healing immediately. And he won't be fine. <laughs> yeah. He will be significantly less fine than Egwene will. Ingtar shows up with some soldiers and tells Rand that the horn was also taken. Um, and that now there's an order that no one can leave due to dark friends in the city. Uh, and Rand is like, but wait, there was an order before. That nobody could leave. But now there's an order that nobody could leave. And you can see him like trying to puzzle out what's going on in his brain. In his tiny wool-headed brain. <laughs> to be Literally fair, made of wool. <laughs> yeah. If people keep boxing his ears, maybe it's not his fault that he can't figure stuff out. Yeah. Also, this also starts a new thing where Rand starts beating himself up internally for naming the Dark One. Is like, did I have something to do with this? I named the Dark One. And essentially this is the new my father of this book. <laughs> yeah. Is him, like, thinking in his head that he's causing things by having named the Dark One. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So this conversation ends. They all go their separate ways. Rand has a talk with Lan about what he can slash should do. I think Land shows up yeah, uh, in the dungeon while people are leaving. Angel Man has accepted Rand from the order, saying that no one could leave, so he is now 100% free to just peace out. Is this also when Land says, you know, where I'm from, whoever raises the child is that child's parent? Because yeah. Rand does have a little bit of, but my dad. Yeah, and I think I, this is this. And then Rand refuses to listen and still has angst. Yeah. Uh, 
slap that on the back of every book. <laughs> it, I think it's perhaps that I'm adopted that his continued angst over it bothers me because I'm just like, he's your dad. He raised you. He fed you. He gave you the magical hair and marked sword. He's your dad. Well, you also figured out before you were like 18, 19. So... Yeah, it wasn't like... Right? Yeah. Okay. I, you I were said for a second. No, I guess it's just like... It wasn't it, a secret that you were adopted. No, and it In it your should, case, that would have been difficult. That yeah. would have been very difficult. It's just like, I don't know why people keep this a secret. It's just like, that's so I don't easy. think many people do. I think that's just like a fiction thing. It's just, it's just a fiction trauma for funsies. Yeah. It's just nonsense. It That, that, that trope bothers me. <laughs> reasonably well they stop doing it eventually when there's something else to traumatize him with well i mean he eventually comes to accept that like okay tam raised me tam's my dad so it won't go on forever i promise episode seven i'm sorry not episode what am i doing we're not on the part where we review the show yet that's a joke uh chapter seven blood calls blood a lot of prophecies in here. A lot of prophecies. Uh, I summarized them. I considered saying all of it. Thank you for not doing that. You're welcome. We're back to Moraine. Um, so she, the Amerlin, Leanne, and Varen have just finished doing as much as they can for Matt to help him survive until they can get the dagger back. Um, so this is kind of the same thing. So, like, when Moraine found him alone with the dagger, she was basically able to reset the corruption and slow it down so that it wouldn't kill him before they could get him to Tarvalin. Now they have... I don't know if they reset the corruption again, or it just might not have been that far, but they basically made it like, hey, he has a few months to live before not having the dagger will kill him. Because it's bad and it poisons him and everyone around him, but it's become so entrenched in who he is that it, he, he relies on it now. Exactly. Yeah, like it ate away at him first, and so he doesn't have enough to go on unless the dagger is there keeping him standing. Uh, How is it going to last 14 books? Maybe they'll get the dagger back before the end of the books. <laughs> so Varen leaves the room. I'm sorry, before Varen leaves the room. Uh, and I think they send Leanne out first. Le I think Leanne is who you're thinking of, because Varen is here the whole chapter. And I yeah. want to talk about Varen in this chapter. Okay, yeah. So Leanne leaves. Um, I think she's sent out. And then Varen... Varen is also told to leave. And before she does, she's like, One more thing. And she pulls out the translation of the stuff that was written in Blood on the Walls of the Dungeon. So after the prophecies they kind of go through the three most important parts but it's good to keep them in mind so i'm going to summarize the summary and then i'll let you talk about varen however much you want mm -hmm. um so lanfear one of the forsaken is free and trying to find rand um forsaken seeking dragon reborn and andoran noble named lord luke went to the mountains of doom the same place that someone named Isam, Isam? I said Isam, who is a cousin to Lan was. One died, one lived, but both are, and the hunt has begun. And then finally, the armies of Arthur Hawkwing sent across the oceans a thousand years ago might be returning soon. 
Might. Might be. Who knows? Just whispers of whispers. Whispers of whispers that the armies are making a return that's pretty great. A great <laughs> return, you might say. So the Trollocs do have a language. Yes. But it was significant in the first chapter when the Trollocs spoke to Rand. Yes. Speaking person language. Yeah, because they don't do that. Okay. They're like, you can learn our prophetic language of bloody letters, but... Yeah. Well, Varen is also of the Brown Aja, which they're... So here's one thing, is that Robert Jordan has sort of a trick that he does where he gives characters exactly one identifiable trait. <laughs> uh, yeah. And for this, he gives the whole Brown Aja the trait that they value learning and knowledge above everything else. But in this case, I actually really like Varen. So partially, it's that she just sort of deduces that the man who can channel in the prophecies is one of the boys. And then when Moraine and the Amaralyn seat hear it, they reach for the power to smite her. And she's just like, huh, I was just sort of guessing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then also her motivation for not like telling everyone that Rand is the dragon or that he can channel. I guess she doesn't know that he's the dragon. Uh, she just knows that he can channel. Uh, no, she does She does mention that he's the dragonborn. She says, like, there's no way that the two of oh, you yeah. she would let later, him walk around unless it was that. She says later, I assume, mother, that he is the dragon reborn. So, oh, Varen is just really great in this chapter. I really like her. She sa- and her motivation for not telling anyone, she says, when they ask her, are, is, are you going to tell everyone? She says, yes, yes, I suppose I should. I hadn't thought of that. But then, if I did, you would be stilled, Moraine, and you, mother, and the man gentled. No one has ever recorded the progression in a man who wields the power. When does the madness come, exactly, and how long? And how does it take him? How quickly does it grow? Can he still function with his body rotting around him? For how long? This is actually good. Like, <laughs> yeah, she, like, wants to watch him die so she can write it down. Yeah, so, like, this is one time where Robert Jordan's trick with his characters actually works for me i really enjoy varen in this chapter yeah she was cool and it's interesting because moraine was like oh the brown ones mm-hmm. and i was just like what's so bad about her <laughs> i think they just think the browns are all boring because they're just buried in books all day she actively wants to watch the dragon reborn die i, I don't think that's boring <laughs> yeah uh yeah the browns are basically librarians okay one last thing on your point about learning the Trolloc language mm-hmm. is that um, Varen mentions that she knows it well enough to translate the prophecies, but that the walls had to be cleaned because, like, this close to the border, some of the soldiers might be able to puzzle out enough that she doesn't want them being able to read any of it. Because it's a survival skill if you're fighting yes. to know what your enemies are speaking. Yeah. So, after this great conversation with Varen, she's great the whole way through the series, I really like her, Uh, we cut to Perrin, who is visiting Matt in the infirmary. He managed to sneak past uh, whoever was supposed to stop him this time, and he's just kind of sitting next to Matt talking. Uh, Matt wakes up to to say one thing, um, and then falls back asleep. 
Perrin gets caught by Leanne in there. Says, you're almost a pretty enough boy to make me wish I was a green. Yeah. <laughs> what do greens do? Uh, greens bond multiple warders. Okay. I think the idea is later they tell us that the greens are considered battle mages. Yeah. And I think the initial purpose of them bonding multiple warders is that they just bring a lot of firepower to a fight. Yeah. But that was back when Aes Sedai were like actively involved in military conflict. But nowadays it's just sort of like... They're the bigamists of the Aes Sedai. Yeah, they're like the opposite of the Reds. Cool. Um, Yeah, now the Greens just kind of sit around being like, man, I sure would love to go to a fight, but I got to wait for the big one. You know, what what if I go to a fight and then the big one happens and I'm not there? So I can't go to a fight. I'll just hang around with my two ripped bodyguards. Uh, Like two to five, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So they're like the liberal feminists to the radical feminists in Robert Jordan's mind. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. The shell. Yeah. Also the type of people to like find a nineteen year old farm boy who is attractive and be like, You belong to me now. I mean he'll probably live a more exciting life. Possibly against his will. (laughs) Don't worry about it. So, Leanne sends him away, says, Matt's gonna wake up. He's gonna wake up whether you sit here and watch him or not. Don't, don't worry about it. So, then we cut to Rand, who wakes up when Perrin returns to the room that uh, they share. Perrin's acting all sulky because Rand was extremely uh, mean to him. He apologizes, kind of patches things up so that they're talking normally. Yeah, I actually kind of feel for Rand in this chapter. Yeah, because he's, I mean, he's super confused, and he's just, like, trying to do something, and he just can't catch a break. Yeah, there's this bit where uh, Perrin is, like, sort of leaving, and Rand is trying to talk to him. And says, Rand studied his friend's back for a moment, then dug up a laugh. You want to hear something? You know what you said to me? The Aes Sedai in the infirmary, I mean. And that's actually pretty well-written desperation dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like, you can sort of feel that he's desperately trying to make things right. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, Perrin asks him something and Rand is like, I can't tell you. Yeah. And so Perrin like slams the door on his way out. At one point, Perrin is described as having the look of a bear that did not understand why he had been hurt, which is like, protect my good boy. <laughs> why would you hurt him? <laughs> Perrin is a very good boy. So just after Perrin leaves, Lan enters. And there's an extended sequence here that I really like of Lan trying to give Rand a crash course in how to talk to, like, maybe the most politically powerful person in the Westlands. Yeah, there's, um... (laughs) uh, There's a bit where Rand is sort of confused about what's going on, he says... Why do I put my hand over my heart if the Amarillan seat stands up? Why refuse anything but water, but not that I want to eat a meal with her? Then dribble some on the floor and say, the land thirsts. If she asks how old I am, why do I tell her how long since I was given the sword? I don't understand what you've told me. And then Land just said, three drops, she poured her. Don't pour it. Sprinkle three drops only. I was like, this don't is- just <laughs> kick off the glass yeah. to the ground. <laughs> Slap the glass onto the floor. It's thirsty. <laughs> this land thirsts. Uh, I actually. This legitimate- land thirsts like Liam. 
<laughs> pretty much. This is another moment where I was legitimately in, like enjoying reading and was engaged. For some reason, I feel the need to point those moments out because I sort of give this book a lot of crap. So I feel like I need to reassure people that, yes, I do enjoy this book sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there are sequences that are more than... I feel like a lot of these books are good on a level where you're like reading it and it's interesting in, you know, almost like a bird's eye view kind of way where you're like interested in the way that the entire series is going. But then there are also moments like this where you're like actively engaged in what is happening on the page in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) he gives Rand some pro tips and a pin before they head out together and um yeah i don't know it's just it's really good i feel like based on something that suan says later lan is kind of just telling rand how to flex i think it's implied that he's telling him what a warder would do in that situation Mm. so they head out of the room towards the amerlin and we get to chapter eight the dragon reborn so they're going to the Amerlin through the women's apartments. Rand is having like a small breakdown in his head about this thing. Like every time he has a thought, the thought is, I bet I could run away right now and I bet I could make it. When Lan tells him to perform cat crossing the courtyard or cat crosses the courtyard, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> There's just, I don't know, like, I don't know what tickles me so much about there being a sword form that's just walk like you own whatever room you're in, (laughs) but the fact that he does it and Rain just snaps into it is really good. Also, please note, every time, this book is really heavy with the, um, like, describing the names of the sword forms, I am going to read all of them, because they're all really... (laughs) I've heard that a boar rushes down the mountain. Uh, Heron riding in the thrushes. Waiting in the thrushes. Whatever. They're all... I don't even know. God, these names are so bad. Please (laughs) cut out me saying that, but it is. So, they arrive at the destination. um, Rand is admitted to the room. And as he's leaving, uh, Lan gives him one last, like, Tyshar Manatharan. So he follows all of Lan's instructions, doing the special bow and the water, etc. And Suan like rolls his uh I'm sorry, rolls her eyes. It's like Moraine, did you let Lan talk to him? Why did you do that? <laughs> Which I think was just funny that this moment between Suan and Moraine of them being like human characters was just this exasperation with because there's a lot that uh, like warders are generally pretty serious people but then Lan especially is bad and so just this one moment of Suan being like why why did you warders only men yes because there's a bit described where um, there's descriptions of what the warders look like, and they all pretty much look the same with their magical cloak, and they're just pretty uniform. And then it's compared to the Aesidae, where they all look different shapes and sizes, but the one thing is similar, and that's how their faces, they look young, but old. 
Yeah, I think Lana especially is just more, like, more dour, more humorless, more serious <laughs> than any of the other warders. But if greens pick a bunch of warders to bind to them, does that mean they're just surrounded by, like, strong people that are really boring? So greens are the exception that I have seen in the series, where I think that they have warders that are not just, like, super serious fight men. Like, they're all still fight men, but some of them will, like, play music or make jokes or smile. Entertain. Yeah. And so there can't be lady warders. Uh, I mean, there could be. It's just not done. Because there are lady Aesidae. Yeah. Okay. Gender. Please continue. <laughs> uh, so Moraine gives us some information on Tam's background. A lot. It like yeah. a lot, a lot. <laughs> yeah, maybe some is the wrong word. Maybe all of would be correct. I don't really know where she learned it. Uh, yeah, I have no idea, because she... Mysterious Ace of Die powers. Yeah, maybe she did research, and so she knew all of this before she even came to the Two Rivers. But then why wouldn't she tell him until now? Who knows. So, he was a soldier for Ilian in three wars... Apparently became a blade master because he earned that sword and then left and came back with a uh, wife from Camelin and an infant in his arms. Uh, Varen tries to test Rand's sword to see if it's actually magical and Rand gets very upset. Do not touch. Yeah, he's like, I'd really rather that you didn't. I did not consent to this. Yeah. So the conversation turns to Rand channeling, and Suan informs him that he will need to learn to control it, and that he will need to do it more in order to do so, uh, to avoid the death that would come from just, like, not, you know, the natural thing that wilders have, where they just die sometimes. And Rand says, uh-uh. Yeah, Rand's like, I never want to touch it again, I don't want to do it, which brings up that i think it's interesting maybe i missed something but it almost feels like if that's really what rand wanted he should be like asking to be gentled because the thing that happens with gentling and stilling is that you're really sad that you will never touch the true source again but rand has only done it once and he like hasn't wanted to do it outside of when he was actively doing it so it almost seems like he would prefer to remove the temptation except that because it is always presented as like because nobody sort of a fate worse than death yeah nobody explains exactly what happens just that it happens and then men kill themselves like he has the idea that it would be bad it just, for for me at least, what I interpreted it is this magical lobotomy, where you're complacent and you're no longer going wild, but also a chunk of your brain's been cut out. Um, no, so we see someone that has been gentled, uh, and characters that have been, yeah, we see, um, we don't actively see gentling happen, I don't think, but we see characters that have been gentled later on in the series, and they're not, like, different people they didn't like change their personality they're just really sad because being filled with the power is like being filled with life and all of your senses are enhanced and the world is clearer and you can't have that anymore 
So it almost seems like Rand, A, has never known that, so he wouldn't be sad that it's gone, and B, would want the temptation removed. Except that I think it's really cool that they, that, that he doesn't know that. Huh. I had that misunderstanding as well, up until right now. Uh, like, that's one of the cool things that I think happens, where characters communicate what they think, but not what is necessarily true. Similar to the um, thing with the Aes Sedai, where common folk are like, Aes Sedai caused the breaking of the world, you can't trust Aes Sedai. Which is technically correct, but it was male Aes Sedai, which no longer exist. And so, like, I don't know. I just think that's a cool thing that um, is done in this series, where, like, people... You know what I said? You know what I'm saying? Yes. I don't know if you actually do. I understand what you're saying. Okay. It is distinct what the characters know and don't know, and that affects their decisions. Yeah, it's... I don't know if dramatic irony is like the actual phrase, but it almost feels like that. So getting back to the plot, uh, Suan tells Rand that he is the for realsies dragon reborn. And he like curls up into a ball on the floor. Uh, yeah, this sort of calls back to the trope awareness that I talked about back in our first episode where it's sort of like, it didn't even occur to me that Rand would know a he's Tavarin that he can channel but then not conclude that c he is the dragon reborn yeah uh, but it makes sense that he wouldn't jump to that conclusion because he's not thinking of himself as the main character of a fantasy epic yeah he's just he says i won't be used my father is tam althor <laughs> it's the greatest hits yeah balls him on his dad <laughs> She'd get like a stamp that says that and just stamp people with it when they try to tell them otherwise. Hand out some business cards. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Randall Thor. My father's Tamal Thor. I'm a sheep herder from the two rivers. Balsamon is dead. I will not be an Aes Sedai puppet. <laughs> just get a sign that says all that. <laughs> she, uh, Suan is like, okay, well, it's great that you think you're not the Dragon Reborn, but you are. And, and not like a fake dragon, because no. Rand lists off the names of a bunch of false dragons that uh, Tom had told him were being manipulated by the tower. Yeah. Something Darksbane, Urian Stonebow, a third name. What's important is that Suan gives him her blessing to go with Ingtar and Co. to retrieve the horn. And he is sent out of the room... See you around. Uh, and at the end, he repeats that he won't be used. So once he's gone, Moraine, Suan, and Varen discuss that he is going to be a problem once he learns how to channel and control himself. That the world will have some issues at that point. We cut to Nanave, who is out stalking the halls. She's looking to talk to Rand, but she comes upon Lan instead. The two of them talk for a bit, and he gives her this ring. And I am I want you two to talk about this, because I know how I feel about it in retrospect. It's a proposal. 
Like, there's no reason you would give a girl a ring unless you're like, I really like you. <laughs> I mean, he gives her, like, a bunch of practical reasons. It's like, this way, you can send a message to me and I, I'll know it's you. But there's no reason you would give a girl a ring unless it's explicitly for marriage. If you're in a culture where rings equal marriage and... Is it? Yeah. I don't we? think it is. Okay. Yeah, because... I don't think we've heard anything about wedding rings. Okay. My apologies, then. I am reading from a westernized, <laughs> colonialized, imperialistic world. I just don't know for sure. But... Uh, I know specifically that the uh, Malkiri do not do wedding rings to show off that they are married. Okay. They have other stuff that they do. Okay. Well, but I mean, then. as I said, he sort of dismisses all the, like, emotional connotations and just sort of says, take it. <laughs> And she does not want it. She's like, I don't want to take this. But while blushing, like, I don't want to take this. <laughs> Babaka. Uh, Nenev is the image of a cinderay. Also, uh, I think this is a definition of a May-December romance, honey. So there you go. Lan's not that old. He's like 45. Yeah, but he's not like 70. That would be what a May-December romance would be. It's still a nasty age difference. <laughs> I think this is more like April, August. Nenev calls out that he could be her father. That's a May-December. It's nasty. <laughs> but there you go, honey. There's an example of a May-December. We'll cons- Tyler didn't know what they were until now. We'll consult the experts off air. For me, December is like someone who's about to die. They're so old. Wow. Savage. For me, it's anybody that could be a parent of you to tv tropes but <laughs> later later so lan leaves moraine shows up and the nave has this fun little line where she's like how long were you here and moraine says not long enough to hear anything i shouldn't have yeah, um, moraine does some fun truth evasion here yeah she says that the amerlin wants to see the boys because they're tavarin yeah not Which, because one of them's the Dragon Reborn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are all very strong Tavarin, to be fair. Yeah. So, Moraine is manipulating Nenev during this conversation. She says something to the effect of, like, well, you know, Egwene's going to the White Tower, and you don't have to. I mean, you can go back, but if you don't go to the White Tower, how are you ever going to learn to control the power enough that you can beat me? <laughs> and the name is like, I really want to fight you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a move that the Aes Sedai love pulling, apparently. It's just yeah. sort of like dropping something like common knowledge that the other person didn't know they knew. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a classic Aes Sedai move right there. So we cut from this conversation where Nenev reaffirms that she is going to the White Tower so that she can learn how to beat Moraine to Egwene in the room with uh, waiting for Nenev. Nenev arrives, they talk for a bit, um, mostly about Egwene growing up and being allowed to stop calling Nenev wisdom. Yeah, I thought that was a really important moment, because Nenev thinks before, she says, you've abandoned Eamon's field to fend for itself, can you still call yourself their wisdom? And that's, she'll struggle with this later in the book. Yeah. No spoilery now. <laughs> yeah, so a servant knocks and arrives to inform them that Rand is trying to get into the women's apartments to speak with Egwene. 
So she heads off to see him. And while Rand is waiting, everybody is yelling at him. There's like 10 people around him being like, what are you doing? This isn't how it goes. And Rand's like, I'm just sitting here waiting. Everything's fine. Bring it down a notch. And they're like, you're violating our space. Leave. Like, don't touch our personal space. I mean, there's a reason they're a women's area. He's with a bunch of Aes around him. He should respect the women's space. You, Woolhead, respect (laughs) the place you're in. Agreed. But there's this one line that I wanted to pull out that Nynaeve says. She says, oh, very well. Uh, The best of men are not much better than housebroken. But then, the best of them are worth the trouble of housebreaking. For me, this is just a, uh... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Low-key, kinky, (sighs) high-key, what is gender to you, sir? (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea. Like, okay, I know what this means. It's just a, that's just a yikes moment. (laughs) Yeah, it's the thing where it's like, you gotta treat a man like a mule and ride. And I was just like, okay. Yeah, as I I said, there's a lot of, like, boomer sitcom logic about the genders in this book. It's like the behind every strong man is a woman thing, and it's gross. I think they reference that. Yeah, it's just a lot of boomer logic for me. I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it could be better. Is there anything else to say about this? Yeah. Okay. Egwene shows up, she and Rand are talking, they confirm that they're both fine after the last 12 hours um, with the attack and the Amerlin and blah blah blah. There's a fun little moment here where Egwene says that uh, Moraine would have left her with the headache from getting hit in the head because of going to see Pat and Fane without permission, except that uh, Moraine couldn't heal the injury and leave the pain. <laughs> Uh, it would be the equivalent of her boxing her ears. Yeah. I feel like most healers would do that if they could to their awful repeat doing s- ridiculous thing patients. Nanave actually talks about that in this section. Huh. Yeah. M- uh, Nanave has a through line with her character where it turns out that a bunch of the stuff that she does as wisdom is just feed people placebos that taste so bad that it cures them if it's a like a behavioral issue or like it either cures them because they're like okay great i that must have done something or it cures them because they're like okay i'm never doing that again i was being a woolhead yeah rand tells her that he won't be an acidi puppet which i don't know if that's like the first utterance of those words in that order but Get ready to hear them. Didn't he say it before? Well, before he said he wouldn't be a puppet and he wouldn't be manipulated. But this is, I won't be an Aes puppet. It's the full phrase. It's the full phrase. We finally achieved. Okay. Peak book two. Egwene reaffirms that she is going to the tower and they part ways with Egwene, excuse me, Egwene crying and saying that she loves him and sending a prayer for his safety. Aww. Well... I feel like everyone else on this podcast is just as compelled by this definitely fruitful romance as I am. (laughs) Well, we know the ship isn't going to sail. Oh, that's true. And it's not even that exciting of a ship. It's just compulsory heteronormativity. So, wow. Whatever. Savage. Um, 
Okay, well, that's the end of that section. Uh, it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. It was a lot of pages. It was a lot of build-up for what the rest of the book gets to do. Um, it was just a what lot. What were you saying, to... Bion? We sort of... Oh, I just said it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. So that's good. <laughs> that's the most backhanded compliment possible. <laughs> yeah. Baka. No, um, it, it, I wish the Ace I part was more engaging and I liked the part where we got to hear from people that weren't Rand and clearly things are going to be happening and there's lots of foreshadowing for future things. I think I just as a reader have certain preferences that are not being fulfilled in the story. Um, well, first off, don't worry. We're going to get so much more Ace <laughs> A lot, a lot. A lot, a lot. Uh, some might say too much. And yeah, I mean, I think the series continues to improve for quite a while from this point. Cool. Um, would you, when we started, you sounded like you thought that this was better than the first book already. Would you still hold that after talking to it? Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of what we meant by like, as soon as book two starts, it's better. It's just the book one is really slow. So uh, that does it for this section. I guess next week we'll be doing chapters nine through... Gosh, I haven't even looked. What is it? 16, 17? Keep it flexible. We'll keep it flexible. I think somewhere around there. So yeah, uh, Jesse, where can people find us? You can find us at our Twitter, which is at Wheel Reading. Uh, we love any and all feedback. Leave a review on any of your podcast services. Anything that we hear back from people is amazing. So that's where you can find us. Yeah, please. <laughs> um, well, cool. I guess that's it. Uh, this has been the third wheel. I'm Tyler. I'm Bion. And I'm Jesse. And we'll see you next time. Thanks.